The nice thing about coming out of hibernation, even if it's a metaphorical hibernation of making stuff to put on the internet, is that you generally come out insatiably hungry. I was very lucky in that I was given a nice fat carrot to provoke my hunger in the form of a new book by Heather Burrell, whose stories you might recall from an earlier appearance on this podcast and who happens to be one of the best people working in short stories today. And I don't get effusive with claims like that. And so, from the fresh-faced, brand-new, crisp collection, Mad Hope by Heather Burrell, it is the 23rd of May, 2012. Hibernating time is over. It's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. Drowning Doesn't Look Like Drowning by Heather Burrell For a long time, my father refused to talk about the accident. That he considered me at fault was obvious, and how to integrate this feeling seemed puzzling to him, although, of course, not to me. I had lost him as surely as I had lost my mother, lost him to a recklessness that had been mere frivolity in the past. My mother's risk-taking had always been extravagant but well-ordered, but my father grabbed at dangerous opportunities as if bullets zinging past him. He had dropped out of the superior trip because a gig had come up, a friend who needed help moving some cargo. Drugs? Maybe. Not weaponry, that was not his style. But that there was a hard edge a large possibility of capture or injury, was a given. Sometimes wilderness trekking was too purely animalistic for him, too distant from the intricacies of human infrastructures. Was my mother angry that he had cancelled, last minute, a trip that was meant to be my initiation into this type of adventuring? If so, she never showed it, In the days leading up to our departure, the expedition became ours alone. We gathered supplies, rolled in cubed clothes and gear into knapsacks built expressly for this purpose. She was a winker, my mother, and in those days she winked at me often, while reaching for a canister of propane, smoothing out a map, pointing out a buckle or clasp, hugging me the two of us wearing only our underwear and neon-orange life-preservers. I do not wink at my own children, or at other children, no matter how urgently the gesture seems called for. A slyness, a secret, an apology, an invitation, a harmless salaciousness, an embrace from a distance. I do understand it. It's appeal its charm. I wanted to wink at Natalie, my first, the moment I laid eyes on her. Such was my understanding of the great and serious joke we had shared. But I had broken blood vessels in my cheeks, torn my perineum in two places. My eyes were dry. Bruce was holding my hand too tightly. I could not seem to muster the necessary combination of muscle coordination, will, and lightness of spirit required. I felt so sure she would have winked back, 
And then the moment passed. The little cub was on my chest, her oily face tipped up fiercely towards mine, then latched on to one of my nipples, attached. If I tell you my mother winked at me while the plane was going down, would you believe me? Could you? It's not real, it's not serious, the wink said. I love and loathe my mother for that wink, a wink I may myself have imagined. Yesterday was a hot day, the type that can only happen on the edge of the Great Lakes here in Toronto, the humidity a heavy canopy over the city, tamping down energy, smog, aspirations. I took the kids to the indoor pool, frightened of the soaring UV pollutants. The fumes from the chlorine, all were too much for James's little bronchioles to bear. I saw it coming, the two deliberate breaths. A seven-year-old child paying attention to how he breathes is rare and wrong. The slowing of his physical movement and the slow turning inwards, the strange soul-quiet that follows. But before he got in the water... He fished his puffer from his bag and sucked on it like a pro, and I thought, the cool water will help. I thought, he can handle this. Modern medicine can handle this. I can handle this. It is the mother's pendulum that swings constantly between sheer panic and willed competence. But then he was dog-paddling weakly to the side while Natalie and Sarah took turns dunking each other, emerging with bangs plastered over eyes like monsters or pop stars, pretending the bubbles they blew were farts, lifting ballerina legs to the sky. I got an email message the other day. It arrived in my inbox with a happy ping and the subject line, Drowning doesn't look like drowning. A forward from a well-meaning fellow mother, the type of dire instructional counsel that circulates amongst us clucking hens. I try not to open them as a rule. I know the gist. Watch out for your kids. There are strangers, spiders, poisons, tornadoes, faulty slides, baddies lurking everywhere. Save them from their own stupid kid selves. But this one I read, eyes skating across the screen without my sanction, the rapid click and the blooming text. Drowning people are physiologically unable to call out for help. The respiratory system was designed for breathing. Speech is the secondary or overlaid function. Breathing must be fulfilled before speech occurs. James could not pull himself out of the pool. I saw him gasp, then lower himself back into the water. I watched his eyes widen and his legs thrash as I scooped him, a fish tired of fighting, up and onto the deck. It's okay, kiddo, I said. It's okay. Let's get your puffer. He nodded, his eyes like leashes hooked onto mine. But the puffer did nothing. And once they were all dressed, the girls' hair tangled pelts down their backs, 
the whining and wheezing from the back seat, the smell of chlorine and kid sweat. I drove him to the clinic at St. Joe's and called Bruce from my cell to come pick up the girls. And then I told James again how okay it really was, as the ER nurse tested his blood for oxygen and gave me this look that said, Not okay, and somehow, Your fault, and Hate this fucking job. James had stopped wheezing then. His lips were turning blue around the edges, a terrifying resignation growing in his eyes. I am tired, and I allow myself, through the scrim of my despair, a moment of irritation with James. There is a particular type of work that goes into achieving the harmony we have reached in my household. I remember what Bruce will not. Natalie's volleyball practice after school. That Sarah will eat green beans only if they are dipped in mayonnaise. This is me, keeper of schedules and child foibles. Bruce is in charge of the jolly in our house, getting us up and out, treating the children like the physical rough-and-tumble beings they are, pushing them over, pulling their pigtails, our very own benign schoolyard bully. They adore it, even James, who is treated differently. It's true. Gentle. I have no illusions regarding my relative importance. I am thirty-three years old, a part-time baker, mother to three children. Still, I don't think it is unfair to say that it is the mother's calendar and not money that makes the world go around. I am an ordinary person who does not believe in diesel trains. I have demonstrated. Honour killings. I have written letters. Or blood diamonds. We wear plain platinum bands and I have signed online petitions. I believe in bread and certain uncalled-for forms of beauty. And I believe in the potential, I do, of every human to effect a shift, some small change in the world. I volunteer in an after-school program for at-risk youth. The program is designed to teach them real-world coping skills. I bake bread with them, which, who's kidding who, is nowhere near a survival skill. There are these things called supermarkets. So, yeah, it's a weird, bourgeois, anachronistic luxury, I know. But, I tell them, it makes your house smell really fucking good. That scores me some points, mainly because I curse, but also because they can tell that I mean it. The smell of bread baking means safety and warmth a cocoon-like protection they have never known. It is possible I feel my children's vulnerability more keenly than other mothers, although we all have dark, bruised spots on our pasts that never seem to heal. Instead of fading, they pass through the colours of the rainbow, shining dully, differently, on each and every moment in our lives. In my twenties I searched for, and found, love everywhere. 
I was an intimacy junkie, and eventually my drug of choice stopped providing comfort. Those sweet, cuddly highs, and my partners, sensing my need, either left or began to hurt me, pressing, pressing on my bruises. A therapist at the time, wiry frame, wiry glasses, patchouli, geranium scent, explained myself to me. She said I was searching for the love I had lost, a mother's embrace like air or water, a mother's protection that surrounds, versus a father's more belligerent affection, the love that takes on all comers. I've often wondered if this is why I chose to have children, to provide that love that was stolen from me. If I could, I would submerge James in my love, provide healing through benediction, the iron clasp of my embrace. We call Natalie, our oldest, the Nat. It is her nickname, superhero moniker, alter ego. There are times when you want nothing more than to slap her away forcefully, to make her listen instead of speak, to silence her whine with a quick backhand swoosh. She is persistent, relentless in her demands. She will not go away. And there are times when her very presence, its drone and reliability, brings the most powerful form of reassurance. When Bruce picked the girls up from the hospital, Natalie lifted the hair away from my ear. Mummy! 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 she said. James has good lungs. Just broken for now, and he will breathe better soon. Breathe better soon. Breathe better soon. She grabbed me around the neck, choked me lightly, then let go, and when I gasped with relief, her eyes said, See? Sarah was already clamped into her booster, looking out the window. Crisis embarrassed her, wounded her sense of invincibility, and frayed the force field she wore like a cloak. I knew that when James pulled through, breathe better soon, breathe better soon, and they were back home, lying like lizards on the floor, head to head, whispering secrets and incantations, Sarah would hurt him deliberately a discreet pinch or tug at his hair. And when he winced, she would smile. Her brother was back. She understands that the vulnerable cannot muster the energy to react to pain or feign indignation. The hospital room was small and shabby. It had the feel of the third world, or one of those crowded strip malls at the edge of the city something provisional and patched about it. None of the slick sanitization of one of the more moneyed downtown research facilities. But never mind. The nurses, unlike the harried intake nurse in ER, were bosomy and matter-of-fact. I curbed the urge to follow them to their storage rooms and efficient phones, to somehow absorb the secret of their large proficiency. I wanted to be near James when he woke up. I wanted to answer his questions with my own calm truth. 
I wanted him to know that although his breath might elude him, I would not. It got worse before it got better. His lips still blue, an IV in his arm. I watched the tube carefully. For what? Air bubbles? Blood? A sign? Then I buzzed the nurses who were beginning, and rightfully so, to become cross with me. I loved them even for their crossness. James was sleeping fitfully, his breath still laboured. I have always considered my children in light of the age I was when my own mother died. It is the year, the seventh, that stands alone as crucible. Some superstitious part of me believes that if they can get through that year unscathed, they will make it through the rest. The fevers, the driving tests, the battered hearts, the scabs and shitheads in the playground. And if they survive, somehow I will. Somehow I can also. But James, it would be a lie, and so inequitable, if I said I loved him best. Oh, I love him best. And now here we are, steroids pumping into his arm, oxygen mask over his little helpless mug. And I am thinking about my mother and yearning for her and so glad she is not here to see this. From a young age I believed God was less spirit than Sasquatch, a mythical figure very much of this earth, not quite human, although possessed of wise Neanderthal-like qualities, a creature perched alone and unique on its very own evolutionary limb. What it would be to glimpse this creature, not something you could share widely, who would believe you? And would you really want to share? You didn't share God, or trumpet him to the masses, nor did you hoard him. You acknowledged him when he emerged. And if you searched for him, you were likely to be endlessly frustrated or attacked by his sham of a likeness around every corner. This was a philosophy I had arrived at mostly through my parents' use of the phrase God's country, which they used to describe remote spaces uncaring, oblivious spots on the globe where humans had little dominion. I understood that to visit these places was a privilege, that to even breathe God's air, to track him by his prince and scat, was a great and awesome thing. So that when we took off from Thunder Bay in our float plane, Michipicoten Islands in our sight, all eleven of us, and our various gear. I knew immediately from that first glance out the window, from the hush that fell over us as we looked down upon the impenetrable forests, their variegated greens, smoky browns, the great sky squeezing up around us, that we were entering God's country, and that to acknowledge it was both sacrilege and necessity." My mother nuzzled my head. God's country, she said, and we nodded slowly in solidarity. Sarah, my youngest, 
is five now, and strangely already the one who needs me least. I watch her sometimes while she is playing, building a tower or drawing castles or cats. Her concentration, her focus, would be the envy of most adults. And I think, yes, she would make it fine if I were gone. She would feel the loss as something sudden and violent, a bullet that came out clean, and then she would pick herself up and carry on. There is something of the stoic cowgirl to her, in the way she has already learned to curse, quietly, authentically. Oh, shit, 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 she mutters when the tower tumbles. "'when the cat's ears have the look of odd antennae. "'Then she carries on. "'James is finally sleeping soundly, quietly, "'his breaths less rasp than whisper. "'We can be forgiven for believing it as angels or fairies, "'ridiculous, exquisite-winged creatures, "'who ride on rafts of air composed of children's sleep sighs. It took me weeks before I could turn my back to Natalie, even while she slept. I was convinced the very fact of my gaze was keeping her alive. How easy would it be for her, so tiny, so mysterious, to be spirited away? I have been known to drool on and over my children, when they were infants bundled snugly in my arms, attached to my nipple like barnacles. "'You're tired,' Bruce would say if he witnessed it. "'And yes, the fatigue in those first weeks "'robs a woman of her sense and dignity, "'makes vanity a frill in itself. "'It is the kind of exhaustion that crosses over "'into a deep, sensual sorrow, "'everything leaky and askew. "'When I breastfed, I felt the world's sadness in my throat. "'I wanted to spit it out, and instead... I had to swallow it. Still, I can tell you, it was not fatigue or sadness that made me drool over my kids, but a slack-jawed adoration, an all larger and more compelling than love. My husband is a good man. Still, sometimes in the middle of the night, when one of the children has woken us with an earache or outrageous request, he will stare at me, sleep-sodden and merciless, as if I am a stranger who has stolen everything from him. And it is possible I have. Gentle is our word, our mantra and slogan and motto. It is our family philosophy and religion. But the way we have sex is the opposite. Brusque, silent, its gestures brutal and sharp. Afterwards we laugh and do not speak. And then there is laundry and eaves troughs and crocodile tears and the dishwasher to unload. When we first met and the moment arrived for me to tell this story, the story of my mother, he listened quietly, then said, Let's not talk about this any more. You are here. Your mother is not. And he was right. He loves me. I know I am fortunate. I have taken my place in the world with relative ease. 
My children are fed, clothed, educated. We hug them all the time. This is not the case for everyone. The school counsellor tells me things about the youth I bake with. I listen and shake my head. They have drawn short straws, it's true. Easy, 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 they say, although everything in their lives is not, high-fiving each other with great tenderness as they come through the door. I love to listen to them, the camaraderie and their shared aggression. You don't know shit, yo. Why not go somewhere like Canada's Wonderland instead of sitting around in that shitty old shade? Oh, yeah, why you got a duffel bag and not a knapsack? Low budget, man, low budget. They steal my phone all the time, play games and coax strange images and sounds from it. Look, turn it sideways, you got a sexy chick. Whoa, who did that? I did that because I'm king, dog. Then when they notice me watching, they berate me in a way that makes me feel like maybe they like me a little. Miss, why you always got to be so in on? No, no, in on, in on, like in on every little thing we do in. And I think I am so not in on anything, really. And what would it feel like to be truly in on? The hood, the world, your head might just explode. They are the type of kids who are frightening to some people, but for a long time they did not scare me. Then one day I answered a call whose number came up blocked, and someone said, Hello? Conversationally, kindly even. Then, I'm going to kill your fucking babies, bitch. And it undid me. The next session we baked a large round sourdough loaf. I brought butter and blackberry jam and we slathered it on and ate together like family. But I was watching them in a way that friends should never watch each other. My children, I thought. You little shits. You threatened my children. Still, the bread smelled really fucking good and the way those ratty teenagers ate... Their eyes, surprised and glad, made me forget for a moment. It really did. Outside the window I can see the highway, cars crawling along the edge of the lake. It was a room like this where I had my babies, all three of them entering the world as a line of cars streamed past below. The children anchor me, I suppose. Sarah was a cesarean, they scooped her out of me whole, but the other two were natural, or as natural as these things get. With James I can remember a feeling of impending collapse. I was in the middle of pushing him out when I informed my midwife that I had to sleep. "'You're having a baby,' she said. It was a soft command and a statement of fact. She was telling me to live. Bruce was fetching a cloth for my forehead— and when he walked toward me, cloth outstretched, all concern, I did not, could not, recognise him. Why have they let that strange man into my room, I thought. This is what these moments do. They unhinge us from the known, from the familiar, the family. 
they give us a freedom to let go, to fall asleep, to let it all fall away. James has regained some of his colour. His forehead is warm, so smooth, when I bring my lips down to kiss him. Soon they will be arriving, the rest of the tribe, and we will strap ourselves into our little metal box and ease on to the highway with the rest of them. There were eleven of us on the plane, and I have always considered this a beautiful and accursed number. I was so obviously an add-on, an extra bead on the abacus. I ought to drown. I have tried to soften or mitigate this fact my whole life, but it remains. It is truth, perhaps the only solid fact I can pull from the whole story. Still, here is how I remember it. A bumpiness, as if the plane were a car going over train tracks. The three modes of transportation suddenly, weirdly melted. Then a sharp drop that made us suck in our breaths and clasp hands. Then another, more dramatic drop. The wink, then a clap as terrifying as the fiercest thunder, and a blank. A shooting pain in my shoulder, the cold and the darkness liquid around me, and a sick-making need to clamber my way up to the surface, to her. And then, once I had seen the sky and breathed the air, a deep unease, a heaviness of limbs. The waves were large, and because of my fatigue I did not fight them, but let the swells carry me. It was if the water were inside of me, then. Cold. So cold, forceful, and roiling. I have had the same sensation only once since, standing far from the beach on the shores of Lake Erie, the undertow tugging at my shins, my family safe, and sand speckled on land. That day I felt the sun on my shoulders and the water around me, inside me, all womb, all soft danger and unrelenting life. I felt my mother that day. She bobbed up, two waves over, her hair slicked neatly back from her face. Did I call out to her? I feel certain that I did, but I have read that within minutes severe cold clouds rational thought. In my memory she is beautiful and strange, comical even, her lips parted in an O of surprise. The face she made when she came upon me in the back of the closet, crouched silently behind the shoe-rack, smiling at my cleverness. Drowning people's mouths alternately sink below and reappear above the surface of the water. Of course she must have known I was there. I floated, my feet barely fluttering, my clothes ballooning up around me. Afterwards they told me that the air in the jacket and my lack of skill as a swimmer had perhaps saved me. The cold became relaxing to me. I didn't have the sense to panic. I saw another person, maybe two, in the periphery, and it seemed to me they were calling out to each other and to me. Physiologically, drowning people who are struggling on the surface of the water cannot stop drowning to perform voluntary movements such as waving for help, moving towards a rescuer, or reaching out for a piece of rescue equipment. 
I think they were counting, numbering off. Did they assign me a number? If so, I have since forgotten it. According to legend, Lake Superior seldom gives up her dead. She gave me up because I was not quite dead. My heart had slowed. Children's hearts are more capable of this slowing, this playing dead. The colder the water, the better, the more effective the response. The blood concentrates its attention and its circulation on the important bits. Brain, lungs, heart. The lake held tight to my mother. Who would not? They never retrieved her body. Normally bodies puff up with the gas generated from decay. Then they rise like bath toys to the surface and they are found. But, they tell me, the cold water didn't let bacteria grow in my mother. She was allowed to sink. I am not brave enough to leave them. It is untrue that bravery and love go hand in hand. Love is its own form of cowardice. If I were brave, I would rent a car and drive north to the shores of Superior. I would go in the summer, when the water temperatures are not immediately torturous. I am a strong swimmer now, and I want time to feel the smooth cold on my skin. I would wade, I would float, I would use my arms and legs to pull me far away from safety. And once the grey waves surrounded me, I would look up into the sky, salute this worn-down world and submerge. I would join my mother. James wakes up as if he has heard my thoughts, as if now that I have pulled him back, he must pull me back too. Hi, Mum, he says. He smiles. Is it possible for a seven-year-old to be sardonic? Hi, James, I say. He looks around. Nice room. Only the best, I tell him, and squeeze his hand. But he means it. He likes this room. He knows it saved him. Still, can we go home now? Yup, your dad and sisters are on their way. Excellent, he says. He inclines his head toward the TV. Can we watch some shows? I shake my head. I think we have to pay. But when I get up and try the button, the television mounted on its very own space arm, it works. A rerun of Welcome Back, Cotter. Is this the only channel we get? He makes a face that makes my heart twitch with irritation and gratitude. Beggars can't be choosers, I say. What does that mean, says James? It means count yourself lucky. What does that mean, says James? It means watch the show and I love you. I kiss him on the shoulder. You, he says, but he's still too weak to push me away. On the screen, John Travolta's jeans are too tight and everybody looks too old to be in high school, but James gets into it and after a few minutes, so do I.